Either way, we'll get started. So in high school, I was a test the limits kind of guy. I wanted a rush of adrenaline from doing things I knew I shouldn't be doing. But I came from humble beginnings when I first started doing this. My brother and I, as our, in our sophomore year, we had a curfew of 11 p.m. I don't know how many kids had curfews, but we did, and it was 11 p.m. Every other night, high schoolers were out hanging out with one another, or they were out partying, which, if we're going to be honest, it's just 10 people hanging out, watching on their phones, not really talking to each other, so it's more lame than the movies make it seem. So if you're one of them, guess you were in the party club, but much fun. Anyways, my brother and I decided we also wanted to start living dangerously. So we decided one night at 3 a.m. that we're going to sneak out of our house. So the plan began running through my head. What do we need to not get caught? How would we go unnoticed? What foreseeable obstacles do I need to make sure we avoid? And what do I do if we do get caught? And so there it was. Our plan was in order. We grabbed one of our four dogs that if we got caught, we would say he got out somehow. We went to go find him. It was foolproof and amazing. But so we quietly sneak out of the house. We get in my SUV at the time. We drive not knowing where to go just yet. The dog is shaking. Our adrenaline is flowing and we get to our destination. And it didn't look like there was only 10 people inside. There were 20 cars outside. So we get out ready for the night in front of us. We get out what feels like slow motion in the cool of the evening or in the cool of the night, I guess. And we start walking in and we go into Walmart and we buy Blue Bell ice cream and then head home. So everything went as planned. We drove back to the house. Many, oh wait, everything went back as planned. We drive back to the house. We re-enter unnoticed and we go to bed high on the success of our plan. But the next morning, when the sun came up, many things were brought to light that I couldn't have seen in the dark. So my dad sits us down and he says, Mijo, we know you guys left last night. And I knew he was bluffing because he was asleep all night. So I was like, when when could we have left? Like it was after 11 p.m. and you were still awake then. The burden of proof was on him not me. He wasn't just going to tell me that I was wrong. So instead of just telling me, he lifts up a newspaper with tire marks on it and said, you ran over this when you came home last night. And it hit me. I didn't calculate one thing in my plan. And it was the time the paper boy was going to throw the paper into my parking spot. And so what happened is I refused to be told I was wrong. So my dad had to show me I was wrong. And this is the point. People who don't like to be told they are wrong simply have to be shown they are wrong. People ask questions nowadays like, what is the meaning of life? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do we know the difference between good and evil? Things like purpose, identity, relationships, friendships, hurt, suffering, and happiness. And Jesus knows the answers to them all. In God's kingdom, there is truth about all of these things. But truth always convicts those who don't live by it because it points out that in us, which is false. The the truth tells us we are wrong. Jesus in the Bible used parables and stories to show that we are wrong. 
Jesus' friends didn't mind being told that they were wrong because they trusted him. They knew that he knew better than them. But everyone else, he had to show the truth to. And we know there's nothing more needed in our world today, in our families, our relationships, or even in our personal lives, than an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and his kingdom. So that's why, as I invite my friend Stina up here, that's why for the rest of this semester, we are going to be studying and talking together about what Jesus called the mysteries of the kingdom. The mysteries that he would reveal when he told parables and stories. And then what those truths reveal about our world and us. So like I said, if you would please welcome Stina. She's going to read our first parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Or to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there, there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and see diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she, can, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thank you. So never in my life, more than in these last two years, have I realized that there are always two sides to every situation. And you learn very quickly that less people realize that than you would think. And that's what's happening here with these religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus is hanging out with people who have never taken God seriously. And these religious leaders became angry. They started scoffing at him, talking to one another behind his back. Although he could hear, they must not be very good whisperers, saying this guy thinks he's holy, but he hangs out with unholy people. They weren't very happy about it. But Jesus hears this and realizes they only see one side of the coin. Who I spend time with. But they don't look at the other. Why? I spend time with them. But Jesus knows he couldn't just tell them that they were wrong. So he wants to show them. So he tells them these two parables, which is also followed by a third of the, th of the same theme. And in our modern day America, many people have speculations about who Jesus is and what he is like. People think he is too harsh. People think he and his followers are intolerant. People think he is exclusive. People think he hates people and wants them to go to hell. Others think that he is simply just a future ticket to some happiness, a rug to step on at the end of their lives as they go to heaven. And there are a few things that feel worse than when someone you care about has an absolutely wrong perception of you. Yeah. Jesus is neither a tyrant or a pushover. So Jesus tells these three parables with one theme to set the record straight about who God is and what he's like. 
The most important thought any of us in this room will ever have are our thoughts about God because everything we do and who we are stems directly from them or our lack thereof. So to grasp a right understanding of who God is and what he is like, there are three things from this parable we want to know. One is how God feels. Two is what God does. And three is how God responds. And we'll get to what later. So let's pray and we'll take a look at it. Jesus, without you, every word spoken by anyone to anyone else and tonight included is just air against a wall. There is no such thing as life transformation without your hand on it. Jesus, you must open eyes to see your beauty, to see how worth loving you are, and to see how much greater than everything else you are in this world. We love you, God, and we need you here, because without you, it's all meaningless. In Jesus' name, amen. So last night, as you heard, there was a ping pong tournament in the Corbett Game Center, which I obviously and ashamedly lost. But I wasn't planning on playing in the first place. It was supposed to be a 60-minute window to hang out with friends, and then I was going to go do some work. But competition just draws me. I don't know why. It's like hunting is the best thing I could think of. After a while, real hunters, they don't really want to spend too much time going to kill small animals. They go for the prize-worthy animals, the big ones. So likewise, I show up, a hunter of ping-pong competition, and I saw what I thought was a prize worth trying to win. And I didn't win. I ended up being, I ended up, I was, I was the prize. I was just someone else on Bernard's shelf that he beat. Just like everyone else in the world, he's probably beat. So either way. So because of this tournament, I ended up being hunted by him. That's what happened. So because of this tournament, I was out later than I wanted to be. So I went uh, to the office to do work afterwards. Either way. So this is normal for me on a Wednesday night. So I assumed everything was fine. I assumed my wife, Robin, Assumed that I was going to go to the office afterwards. So me, I'm having a good time. I call my friend and then on the way to the office and I start working. And as I start reading, I get a call from Robin. I answer and come to find out that for the last hour, she thought I was coming home. But there was no call and no text saying otherwise. So I imagine she begins to worry a little bit at the beginning. Like, I don't know where he's at. I guess he's not home. Some time passes. She begins to think something might have happened to me. Maybe I've been taken by someone. Maybe Bernard took me as his prize. (laughs) More time passes. She begins to think maybe I was in an accident. Maybe something bad happens. She still just waits, doesn't call. She waits a little longer. And then the thought comes to her mind. What if something happened to him? And now... I have to do everything around the house that he normally does. And immediately, this just sets her off. Her heart begins racing, and she can't wait any longer, despite all the horrible other things that could have happened to me, and she calls me. But for that entire time of her worrying, I was just going on my merry way, thinking that everything about life was normal. Because it wasn't me who was filled with worry. It was her filled with worry over me. And this is the point I'm trying to get at is that heartache comes not to what or who is lost, but to the one who's lost it. We have probably had someone we love or care about in the hospital in a dangerous situation or unknown situations where we can't be there to help, and our hearts ache at the thought of something happening to them. But for them, it is not so. They don't worry about it the way we do because they are in it. 
When, for example, we many of us probably drove cars for the first time, we drove with this great confidence in us that everything's going to be fine while our parents watched us drive away with all the greatest worry in the world at our driving skills, other people's driving skills, and the distractions of phones nowadays. There's always one who is lost, and there's always one who has lost. Every person who believes they can run their lives best without God is lost. Some think they can, but they just don't know they're wrong. Others have been taught they can and didn't know that that was just inaccurate. Others don't want Jesus in their life at all, whether it's right or wrong. They just don't care. They don't want him. And not only does that hurt you, but it hurts those around you. So when we do this, God suffers pain for every person, not so much because of his loss, but because he knows our loss. For God loves each and every person, and that love is wounded by our foolish choices. Like the love of a boyfriend or girlfriend that is wounded when another cheats on them or leaves them unexpectedly and for no reason. Because of God's love for us, he suffers more than we do in this separation. Whereas we, have no lot, we often have no love for God that can be wounded by us being separated from him. Does that make sense? We may feel no pain at being separated from him, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't. I was hanging out with a friend of mine named Marcus Dodds this week, and he told me something I wanted you guys to hear. He said, so it is God who suffers and not the heartless sinner who continues to go on his own wretched way and courts the destruction which Christ died to save him from. God really does love us, whether we want him to or not. You may destroy all your love for God, but you cannot destroy his love for you. It persists because it's love. It patiently waits for your return because it is love. He allows himself to be insulted by us in conversation, misunderstood by our thoughts about him and rejected by our choices in life. Why? Because it is love. And many people today think it's fine to go on hurting God like this. And then now one day when they die, they'll make it better and he'll take them back. But not only is that ideological foolishness, but it's cruel. I don't know which of any of us in this room would continue to hurt someone who loves you just because you know they're patient and will take you back when you decide you're done doing it. These are God's feelings towards us. But heartache, because heartache comes not to what or who is lost, which, if we're honest, is us at times, but to the one who lost it. Can it be true that God really loves you? Surely there is no question more worth your attention in life than this one. So the question now is, this sounds nice, sounds really lovey-dovey, all this stuff sounds great. How do we know that this is true? How do we know he really feels this way? By always looking at what he does in response to it. Allow me to explain. There is an epidemic in the United States of people treating animals like people. I have seen middle-class pets have nicer, more creative meals than I had for half of my childhood. I grew up on fish sticks, mac and cheese, hamburger helper, eggs, cereal, ramen, and popcorn, sometimes all at the same time, buffet style if I was alone. But dogs get this custom food, those ready-made meals that get delivered to your house, you see, 
There's DoorDash for dogs. There's hotels for dogs. My dog's hotel is a kennel. And there's outfit for dogs. My dog's outfit is something called their fur. My mom always tells me because of my attitude towards animals, I'm not allowed to get any more animals. But I'm, you know, I don't live in a house, so... But because, anyway, I love my dogs. I love my dogs. I don't hurt them. They ate, they ate my burrito this morning. I was very upset about that. But because of this mindset towards animals, when one gets lost, I have literally watched people get sick as, about not knowing where their animal is. They get sick not knowing. They get sick at the thought of them being lost. I have seen people act like they lost their firstborn child when their dog gets out. And yes, I do too. Get, I also get sad if I can't find my dog. But we've all probably experienced or at least seen someone when they can't find their pet immediately. Every other animal in the room ceases to exist. You watch them frantically running around the house, repeating names. It's like, the, not sometimes frantically either. They're like, Samantha? <laughs> it's okay. I, I know some will get where that came from. Um... The movie Frozen, Lauren. Either way, <laughs> all of a sudden, this person who always wants to bum rides off other people seems to have a never-ending supply of gas while they look for their own dog. Why does this happen? Because that which is lost occupies more thought and provokes, provokes larger actions of love than that which is already found. It doesn't matter that someone's husband is still in the room. If the dog is lost, the husband doesn't exist till the dog is found. It doesn't matter that we still have other families and friends. If our dog is lost, it occupies more thought and provokes larger actions of love than that which we have already found. The very fact of people being lost sparks in God a tender action towards us. God doesn't console himself, make himself feel better for your lostness by giving himself to the people that already love him. He doesn't view you like a job opening that can just be filled by anyone. No dad that is worth anything would replace his horrible child with another one. He simply cannot because his love is personal and it is given individually. Yeah. It is not all the same to God if some other person is saved while you are not. This is where the deepest feelings of God are brought to the surface. When his connection with you is threatened, everything in him is stirred at its deepest level. God begins to act. He begins to search insatiably for that which is lost. The shepherd who misses one, like the story says, doesn't sit down with the 99 who still love him and are there, but he immediately goes out in search of the one. He knows that the recovery of that sheep depends entirely on him because it's not going to come back to him. He has to go get it. So he prepares himself for trouble. He prepares himself for risk and he prepares himself for sacrifice just to make it happen. God is the one with the burden to find and create a way of rescuing and bringing us back to him. He searches diligently. He leaves no stone unturned. With every part of himself, he tries to make dead men and women come to life. Jesus, contrary to popular belief, did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Yeah. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He became separated from God so you wouldn't have to be. He died so you wouldn't have to anymore. 
on the cross, you occupied so much of his thoughts that he refused to get off if it meant he couldn't have you. That which is lost occupies more thought and provokes larger actions of love than that which is found. And dying on a cross was the largest action of love anyone ever has or ever will show you, even if you got a nice big teddy bear for Christmas. I guarantee you the cross is greater. Not only did Jesus have to die because of us, because, but he wanted to die for us. And like another friend of mine, A.W. Tozer says, if the love of Jesus on the cross doesn't change your heart, then no reward of heaven or threat of hell will either. Good. When we see the beauty of what has been done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. When we realize this love, the love that we've been looking for, this greatness, this acceptance, this honor that we've been looking for in others and in other things is already here. God feels heartache over our lostness and he has done everything in his power to bring us back home. And so the final question slash mystery that most might have at this point would be what happens if I do come to him? What happens with all of my anger, with all of my selfishness, with every decision I've made, every thought I've had, everything I've done that no one here might really know what happens to me when I come back. There's a movie, for those of you, many of you heard this the other day, but that's okay, it's just as good at hearing it a second time. There's a movie, it's about six years old, starring a man named Matt Damon. It's six years old, so if there's spoilers in this, I'm sorry you should have watched it six years ago. But... In this movie, he is an astronaut who's, uh, who's with his team studying on Mars when a massive storm suddenly hits. All of a sudden, all visibility is lost. Things are flying everywhere. And this satellite that gets dislodged hits Matt Damon's character. His name's uh, Mark, Mark Watney. It hits his character. The, no one saw where he went. All they see on their comms is that his, his vitals are gone. It's like he's dead. They know that there was a puncture in his suit, so surely he can't be alive long. So they have to leave or else the ship that they can leave on is going to fall over and they're all going to die too. So they leave. And during the team's long journey home, which is about nine months, seven months in, they realize their friend and teammate is still alive on Mars. So the team, in defying direct orders from the director of NASA himself, decides to not go back on Earth, but instead slingshot around it to go back to Mars to save their friend. And so during those nine months, the greatest minds in the world are working together to figure out how to get him from the ground up to their team because they can't land to get him. And so all of a sudden, the final day comes when they're like, we're, gonna, we're about to approach. We need to get him up here. So all the plan is in place. He gets in his little rocket. All of a sudden, scenes start panning out over different major cities in the United States, Tokyo, in this final hour where everyone for months has been keeping up with the news, watching, waiting for the day that this man is going to be rescued by his team. And so the cities are, the cities are, the streets are packed. Uh, New York Times Square, people everywhere. Every, every major city is listening into the audio of these astronauts. And all of a sudden, so Mark Watney, he gets in his little ship, flies up, and then it runs out of fuel right where they knew it would, right above the stratosphere. And his team is about a thousand yards away from him and they can't get any closer. So all you hear in the audio in these big cities is they say, well, he's too far, we can't, we can't get to him. Even if we like 
even if we tether ourselves to the ship, we can't get to him. He's too far. And then on the audio, you hear Mark respond and say, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump to you. And all of a sudden, he jumps. And the audio in all these cities goes dead silent for what seems like the longest two minutes of their lives. And then all of a sudden, one of the astronauts breaks the silence. And you hear them say, Houston, we got him. And immediately... All of these cities that have been watching and waiting for months uproar and yell and celebrate and cry because one man got rescued. And this is the point I'm trying to get to, is that the joy of success is proportionate to its difficulty. The joy is greater because the effort to bring it about has been greater. The world in this movie waited over 600 days for this man to be rescued. And when he was, the joy was immense. All the hazards and sacrifices of the search are repaid by the recovery of that which is lost. That moment is what it's like. And that's how it feels. That's how God feels when someone really does see him for who he is and trusts him with their lives. God feels the pain of separation from us and he has endured through it. But now all those feelings are swallowed up in the joy of restoration. It is God's greatest joy when love has succeeded at winning back the object of its love. There is joy which no one but you can give to God. This joy over your return to what is good and your hatred of what is evil and what hurts him. It is a joy which none but each one of you individually yourself has this humble glory of stirring in God's heart. So as I close, allow me to leave you with one concluding thought. Jesus, through these parables, is trying to get one clear picture across to everyone about who God is, And what he is like. The most important thing each one of you will ever think about. God is the only one who wants what's best for us. He's the only one who actually knows what's best for us. And he has proven he is the only one unselfish enough to pay any price so that we can have it. And what is best for each one of us is him. Because God is worthy to run our lives and he is worthy of us Not because of what he does, but because of who he is. One of the greatest mysteries of the kingdom is God's heart for the world. But these parables show us how God feels, which is pain over our choices and lostness. What God does, which is take on risk and sacrifice just to bring us back. And how God responds, which is joyfully taking us in. You may destroy all your love to God, but you cannot, despite how long you do it, destroy his love for you. So how do we know? How will we know if the Lord, if God has been working on this in our hearts in any way, how will we know? If you begin to sense your lostness, even a little, and you have this desire to escape it, then you know he's been speaking to you. Coming back to God does not just mean repenting of the things that we've done wrong, but it means repenting of all the wrong reasons we have done anything right. We must admit at some point that we have put our ultimate hope and trust and affection 
in something other than Him. And that in both our wrongdoing and rightdoing, we have been seeking to get around Him so that we can get to that thing we want. We either do wrong to avoid Him or we do right to bypass Him, to say, I do right, now I'm going to go have this thing I want that's not you. And if you read these parables, the simple 24 verses over and over and over again, you'll see that they are the gospel within the gospel. So how do we respond to this? In one of the parables, the woman found a coin she had lost. And simply put, that is how we're supposed to respond, like a coin that has now been found. If we really do love God, we see him for how good he is then we simply offer ourselves as a coin in his hand, allowing him to spend us as he chooses. That's how you respond when you see how good and loving God is. If you want to spend yourself the way you want, then I would recommend, I would highly, I would be certain to say you have not given yourself to him because that's what it looks like. A coin in his hand for him to spend however he wants. And the best way to do that is with other friends who really do love Jesus. That's getting to know more of him with friends who already know him, having friends that know him. And so we only have one candle of life to live. Only one. You can't turn the candle off. You can't give it its time back. And we should gladly burn it out wherever he should put us, not wherever we want to be. So I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Jesus, we love you so much. Lord, like I said before, you are the only one that can open our eyes. You're the only one that can help us see color again. The world is black and white to those who do not know you, to those who do not and have not seen your beauty. Jesus, you must reveal yourself to us. You must speak to us. Be gracious to us when we are hard of hearing. And please, oh God, let us hear your voice. Lord, don't let us feel peace and comfort in our lostness. May we feel it and may we want to escape it more and more and more. May you not let anyone here not be discomforted by their lostness. In Jesus' name, amen.